You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program. I am glad to be with you today. And joining me is somebody that I have not had the pleasure of talking to face-to-face yet, but uh, we're going to do an interview. Uh, It's Chase Oliver, who's exploring a run for President of the United States on the Libertarian ticket, and previously ran for the United States Senate in Georgia. And I have to say, Chase, it was very exciting on CNN on election night to see you and the Libertarian uh, ballot line on there. They actually included the Libertarian instead of just, you know, other. Uh, so that was kind of cool. You had a very successful run for Senate in Georgia and impressed a lot of people. And uh, you're now transitioning that into an exploratory committee. And I welcome you to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I always enjoy uh, speaking to folks and to libertarians. You're right. We haven't had a chance to meet face to face yet, but uh, I imagine with my traveling and, and stuff like that, I'll see you at a convention or somewhere eventually. Somewhere along the line. We talk on Twitter, but you know that's not a real place. <laughs> um, let's start at the beginning. You know, let's uh, go back to Chase Oliver's childhood and tell us how you got here. How did you end up a libertarian? You know, uh, did you grow up in Georgia? And tell tell me a little bit about your childhood. Well, yeah. Well, uh, I was born in Nashville, Tennessee. My family uh, is mostly up in Tennessee, but uh, I've been in Georgia since I was a, a wee guy of seven years old. So since I've been seven, I've been living in Georgia. Uh, I grew up in Gwinnett County, which is a uh, suburban county um, in the metro Atlanta area. Um, and then I've been living in Atlanta since about 2009. Um, and yeah, I, uh, I've i always been very kind of politically interested. My mom says like one of my first things that I really like gravitated to was like when uh, the president, it was President H.W. Bush at the time when I was really little, like anytime you'd be on TV, I'd be fixated because it's like the president's talking. And so like I've always been somebody who's very been kind of paying attention to politics and I grew up in a household that my grandfather is a trucker, uh, blue-collar Democrat. And so we grew up in kind of a blue-collar Democrat. My parents are actually, ironically now, uh, much more conservative. They kind of flipped along with the nation. But uh, we grew up in a blue-collar Democratic household. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I was somebody who supported Al Gore at 14. I was making phone calls for Al Gore. It was like before my voice changed. So people thought I was a lady on the phone. And then, uh, and then I really got to work politically, uh, fighting to get Obama the nomination in 2007, 2008 over Hillary Clinton. I thought as a young person, I wanted somebody who represented my generation more. And of course, as an anti-war activist, that's what got me really politically savvy as an adult. And as a teenager, you know, I started seeing my friends from high school signing up for the military and going to a war zone in Iraq that was based on lies and BS. And I really felt like we were betraying an entire generation of people in my generation and so I thought, stupidly enough, that Barack Obama was going to keep all his promises to close Guantanamo. I, 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 I thought he's going to close Guantanamo. He's going to end the wars. He's going to stop the drones. And we're going to give him the Nobel Peace Prize. And he got the Nobel Peace Prize, but he didn't do any of the stuff to earn it. And so that, uh, that turned me away from the Democratic Party. Because when I tried to start organizing my friends who were Democrats to start getting uh, organized to be anti-war activists against Obama all of a sudden they stopped being interested. And I realized their anti-war activism was really more anti-Bush activism. And they were using the war as an excuse. But as soon as their guy was doing it, they found every excuse not to protest the wars. 
And so that turned me away from the Democratic Party. That was about uh, 2009. Uh, and I thought, maybe I just won't vote anymore. You know, I didn't know there was really a choice beyond the two parties at that time uh, until I was at the Atlanta Pride Festival in 2010. Uh, and the Libertarian Party of Georgia was the only political party that was really heavily invested in being there. Uh, their candidate for governor, John Mons, was there. Their whole slate of candidates was there kind of doing their thing uh, at a time when the Democratic Party in Georgia, frankly, was afraid to go to the Atlanta Pride Festival because they didn't want to turn off their suburban voters. Yeah, let me let me pause there, because you and I have a very, very similar story. I got jaded about a, a decade before you, and I was on the right and a bushy in 2004, and it's the war that turned me libertarian. Um, and... When we would go, so I was executive director of the Libertarian Party of Indiana from 2008 to 2012, and we would go to pride festivals, and this is a very conservative state, uh, much like Georgia. I'd say Georgia, well, it's probably even money at this point, Um, even though Obama back then went for, Indiana went for Obama. But we heard the same thing. What's the point of going to pride festivals? I mean, I'll be honest. I didn't know that there were uh, socialist libertarians until like 2018, 19, right? I had never really met anybody who had come from the left who had kind of a similar story like you. And so it is interesting to kind of have some validation for that strategy because, you know, when Rupert Bonham from Survivor fame ran for governor in 2012, he was the first – openly supportive candidate of gay marriage in 2012, which was a big campaign risk in Indiana at the time. Uh, And we got a lot of criticism that no one will ever come from Obama's camp and from the left and join the Libertarian Party. It's a waste of resources, and you're only going to tick people off. Um, So it's interesting to kind of hear you say that, because that was a very strong notion within the Libertarian Party at the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I want to say that even as a Democrat, I was always somebody who was kind of fiscally restrained in mind. Uh, like I said, I, we were kind of blue collar Democrats. So we were Democrats who believed in like balancing the budget and, you know, uh, going to work. We didn't believe in like an over-reliance on welfare, these kinds of things. But I was more of a criminal justice, immigration Democrat, uh, anti-war Democrat like these. And these were because, again, I thought there was only two choices at the time. So you couldn't be you had to be one or the other. And it was being at this Atlanta Pride Festival in 2010. Uh, and like I said, John Mons was the candidate for governor at the time. He's actually running for state senate right now, if anybody wants to help him out. Yeah, talk uh, about Mons, because he was really my choice uh, privately for the nomination last time. I mm-hmm. knew him back when he was running for governor at that time. Yeah. Just a terrific he, guy. Talk about John a little bit and why he was so, so influential on you. So John Mons is somebody who I think uh, he can speak the radical message of liberty in a way that really kind of connects with voters in a way that makes a lot of sense. You know, he is somebody who is like what you would identify, I guess, on the scale of libertarians is very radical, you know, but he is somebody who can preach that message in a way that the average person can really jive with. And uh, he's, you know, he's a former uh, member, chapter head of his NAACP chapter. He came from Morehouse, uh, you know, which is a historic black college. Uh, He was a member of a fraternity there. So he was very, very like uh, somebody who, came from uh, a, a, an area where like, you know, he, he talks about freedom man in a way that I really just can't because, you know, he came from a descendants who were enslaved by the people who were legally enslaved because government allowed people to be owned. And so he is somebody, when he talks about freedom, man, he really comes to it from a place of real deep respect for what Liberty means. 
And he's somebody who's not afraid to say that and just to be real upfront about it. And, uh, and that's why he is probably the, I consider him my political mentor. He was my first libertarian vote, even before I was a member of the libertarian party meeting him there. You know, I get to the tent and he's like, Hey, take this world's smallest political quiz. I'm like, I don't know. I'm kind of partying. I don't have time for that. He goes, well, tell me your one issue that make that you're most important. And I bet, you know, and I bet it's libertarian. I said, I'm anti-war. I'm opposed to the war in Iraq. And he said, you're a libertarian. Just don't know it yet. We're the anti-war party. You know, we're the party that supports peace and free markets. And then he started talking to me about that. And, you know, I, that was my first vote for a libertarian. So thank goodness that the Libertarian Party of Georgia took the time to invest there because I've been an activist and a libertarian and a and somebody who's been working very hard in the party ever since then. And, uh, you know, I'm happy they were there because if they weren't, I would probably just either be a jaded non-voter or somebody who, you know, uh, you know pulls the pulls the lever. You know, maybe I would have heard about the Libertarian Party eventually, but I'm glad I got the jump start thanks it, to that. Yeah, it probably wouldn't have been as personal. And I think I'm 39, so we're roughly the same age and I think for people our age, there were two really formational issues um, when we were coming up. I mean, it was 9-11. I turned 18 two days before 9-11. Um, so it was, you know, am I going to war, <laughs> right? And gay marriage was just an enormous issue. I think any, if you're 18 now, you would take it for granted and not understand the debates that happened at that time. But, you know, I was reading the Guardian piece and you were a teenager, so it was so much more personal for you. Um, you know, in a state that outlawed sodomy. So can, can you talk about, you know, you talked a little bit about the anti-war stuff, but how formational that debate was and, and what it was like. Were, were you out in high school? Yes. Oh, yeah. I was very much out. I came out about uh, maybe 14, 15 around that time. Uh, and I formed the Gay Straight Alliance in my high school. I was very, very vocal about being who I want to be and being a proud individual um, and that's another reason why I think it's fine and it's really actually a good idea for libertarians to market to the LGBTQ community because at the core, they are about radical individuality. I want to be myself in peace, who I am, love who I want to love as long as I'm not hurting anybody. And that's a message that ultimately is libertarian to its core. We believe that you're allowed to love who you want to love and be who you want to be. Like That's something that resonated with me as well with the libertarian message. And yeah, growing up, uh, you know, growing up gay it was very easy for me to see my my community and, and people like me used as wedges during politics and to be used as political tools to try to bring out the conservative vote, to, to scare people about recruitment and like all this stuff. Uh, you know, the, this whole grooming conversation that we see now in 2022, uh, a lot of that stuff is just echoes of what I heard in 2004 as a 17 year old and being told that I should be ashamed of who I was or that I was wrong, that I shouldn't be allowed to get married, that there should be a constitutional amendment to prevent me from getting married. So, like, I understand what the heated rhetoric feels like for some of the people who are going through it today in 2023 now, uh, you know, we're in the new year. Uh, but it, it's it's something that is very personal to me as a libertarian because I believe ultimately every person should be allowed to be who they want to be in peace. And that's what liberty means to me. And uh, being a gay man, that's something that's very important to me that I should be allowed to to live my life authentically and not have to be afraid of government persecution. Do you think it, it was sort of interesting how much press you got right after the uh, Georgia runoff, you know, forcing the runoff, not after the runoff? Mm -hmm. um, and I have to think just based on, you know, kind of seeing it scrolling through my feed that you short circuited the media a little bit by talking about being openly gay and openly armed. I mean, was that your sense as, as a person who was kind of in the middle of that storm? 
Yeah, uh, that definitely did always. It confused people on the left and the right pretty equally, which I have to say is, and that always surprised me because I think if you're uh, somebody who feels like that government or even people are systemically trying to oppress you, uh, it totally makes sense to defend yourself and be able to have the means to defend yourself. And certainly in the wake of the Club Q shooting, uh, I feel like it's still very important to say that, you know, you should be allowed to arm yourself. You should be allowed to defend yourself, especially when you see people coming and shooting up clubs. I also encourage people, and this is the other the flip side of uh, owning a gun, is also knowing how to respond to if there's actually a, uh, a situation where you might have to use your gun or in the aftermath have to help people who have been shot. I think any person who owns a gun should take it upon themselves to take the time to learn how to use a tourniquet, learn how to pack a wound, because if you have the capability of wounding somebody in error, you should know how to help save their life in that worst case scenario. If you accidentally discharge your gun and you hurt somebody, you should be able to know how to tourniquet the wound, stabilize somebody and get help. And I think that's just part of being somebody who owns a gun. Uh, that's just part of being a personal responsible and we're the party of personal responsibility. So I wouldn't say that should be legally mandated or anything, but just as a personal gun owner, I want to encourage anybody who is a gun owner out there to know how to respond. If you get shot, somebody, you know, get shot, so that you can help save somebody's life. It's not just about defense, but it's also about being a great first responder. So when did you make the choice to commit to the Libertarian Party? And why? Uh, you know, uh, about 2000. Uh, so my first vote for president was 2012, and I uh, officially became a Libertarian in 2014. And it was during the midterms. Uh, we had a Libertarian candidate, Amanda Swafford, who was running in that race. Uh, and, you know, I really got behind her and said, you know what, I'm going to go up and register and, and go to the can- and conventions and things like this. And that's what got me started being a party member was supporting one of my local candidates. And, uh, you know, I've been here ever since just fighting for freedom and thinking that the Libertarian Party is the best tool to achieve that using politics to get people elected to office so that we can make change. We now have hundreds of Libertarians across the country. We can grow that. We can start getting our... Uh, getting our backbench filled up and so that we can start winning higher and higher races. And that's how we're going to move the Overton window towards liberty politically, whether we win or whether we just push the discussion in the direction that it needs to go. So you ran for Congress. I think you, did you run for a, a lower race before you ran for Congress? Nope. My first race was for Congress in 2020. And that was a, a special election. Libertarians don't often get to run for Congress here in Georgia because of cumbersome ballot access laws. But when we have a special election, there's no signature requirements. So it's very easy for us to get on the ballot. Uh, and John Lewis passed away. He was a civil rights icon and, uh, you know, a, a you know a standard bearer for the Democrats in Atlanta and in that congressional seat. And as somebody who has always fought for freedom, I thought libertarians should have a voice in that race. And so I decided to jump in and, uh, you know, I participated in dozens of forums. It was during COVID. So most of it was done via Zoom, didn't get to do a lot of in-person campaigning. Um, but I'm happy to say a lot of people that I know said the first time they got to hear from a libertarian in Atlanta was from me and uh, that they liked the message they were hearing. So, uh, you know, I was, it was an honor to run that race because it, despite political differences, I do believe that John Lewis is somebody who's literally, uh, you know, he's had his skull cracked open fighting against government's, uh, uh, systemic racism in, in the form of Jim Crow. And I think that is, even despite political differences, you know, we can fight about how much we're spending in Washington and things like that, but. Uh, it was it was good to have a libertarian representation to to try to fill that vacancy. So why did you decide to run for Senate? It's a much bigger task to run for a statewide office, especially in a state like Georgia, which is very large, very diverse. Um, why did you make that decision? 
Well, uh, because I thought I could be a good messenger for the party and a good messenger for uh, liberty, somebody who can introduce a lot of new people to the libertarian message in a way that will resonate with them. Uh, I like to say, you know, I try to speak the libertarian language in the duopoly kind of dialect. Like I have to, you know, you have to, not everybody sits in our libertarian echo chamber. Not everybody understands everything about libertarianism. And so we have to bring people in as candidates in a way that you have to, you have to meet them where they are and bring them to you. You know, it's kind of like bringing them out in a Muhammad or, you know, whatever. Uh, and like, that's, uh, what I tried to do as a candidate. And I felt that it was important that we had a good messenger in our Senate campaign that was going to be able to stand up to Raphael Warnock and the overspending and what the Biden administration was doing, but also uh, be somebody who's going to speak out against uh, the Republican party in our state, who frankly, they like to talk the talk, but they never really walk the walk about limited government and cutting spending and uh, fighting for more individual freedom or making it easier to start a small business. They like to say things and they never do things. And so I thought, Putting somebody who was going to speak about action and getting things done in Washington, D.C., breaking a partisan logjam. You know, it's important for us to fight to have a libertarian in the Senate, to fight to have a libertarian in Congress, because as you've seen, we can have razor thin margins, both in the Senate and the House right now. And if we just had a sprinkling of libertarians, they would be the difference makers. They would be the game changers, both in terms of who controls the levers of power and then what legislation is going to eventually get on the president's desk. And so we do need to have. Senate and House candidates speaking that message and trying to say, hey, we can have a better way in Washington, D.C. than a two-party system and a broken one at that. And that's what I try to provide. I try to be, you know, somebody who was wanting to go to work in D.C. I didn't want to just talk about, you know, uh, talk about things. I wanted to talk about what I would actually do had I been in, in, in the room and getting work done. And that's what we need from our candidates. All right, Tom, I'm going to put a, ca- a couple caveats on this question. Um, first one is I'm not picking on Shane Hazel. I, I've talked to him a couple times. Seems like a very nice man. And I'm not asking you to, to give commentary on his campaign or, or any of that. I'm, I'm asking you why you, you make the choices that you make. But I think that your race offers a, an interesting litmus test, or I don't know, litmus test is probably not the right word. Um, a good test case is the word I was searching for on the messaging debate within the Libertarian Party, which is, number one, Justin Amash, broad appeal, appeal to the left and right on the issues that they care about, maybe be a little bit more of a radical centrist and go broad, which I would think that your campaign kind of fit into that. The second is, let's be as radical as possible. Don't water down the message of liberty. We need to be as close to Ron Paul as possible. And when people hear unfiltered liberty instead of pandering, they'll fall in love with the message and join us just like in 2008 and 12 with the Paul campaigns. Um, Shane Hazel was running for governor against um, Kemp and Stacey Abrams. It was a very close race. Your cl- your race for Senate was obviously very close with Warnock and um, Herschel Walker, and Hazel ended up with 0.7% of the vote, and you ended up with, I think, was it 2.1? Yeah, 2.1%, about 80, a little over 81,000 votes. All right, and you're in a blue swing state, red swing state. It really purple. depends. It's purple. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of a good test case with Atlanta being a large... Um, purple and blue block, and then a lot of uh, red in the rest of the state. Do you think that that is a fair um, 
test case of the uh, of comparing the two styles of messaging and why do you tend to fall more towards the the broader appeal camp and what do you think of more radical messaging there's a lot there well, but um, first off i have a no problem with radical messaging like i said i support john mons the guy's got about as radical messaging as you could want i also would say that uh in many ways i have pretty radical messaging you know i want in the income tax i want to you know uh, if I were to get in charge, if I could wave a magic wand, we'd eliminate a bunch of departments. But I also uh, understand that, you know, I'm not Thanos. Like, I don't have a gauntlet and I can't just, like, snap libertarianism into being. And so we have to provide a path for people. People will not – and we can talk about – and I, I'd say this all the time. I can speak to the libertarian ideal, but I also am able to speak to voters about, like, how do we get there? Like, what's the beginning step? Like, what's that first step on the journey? And that you have to be real with the voters. You cannot, you cannot go to voters being like, hey, if I'm elected tomorrow, it's all going to change. Everything's going to be different because that's just not realistic. And voters see that inauthenticity. That's why I feel like that's why I feel like you have to have that kind of broader speak. You have to be able to speak about what is possible as a libertarian getting elected into office, whatever office that is. Sometimes that means you can be a little bit more radical. I also think as your your messaging is gets broader and bigger, as your audience gets bigger, you have to have a broader message appeal. You cannot have, you know, it is very rare that candidates who win uh, are the most like filtered down, like unfiltered version of their political ideology because they have to understand that they have to be able to communicate their ideology to people who don't speak their language. Like, for instance, I support ending the Fed. I support the end of central banking in this country. But most people don't even understand what the Fed does or what central banking is. And as a candidate, you don't usually have long form. You usually have one minute sound bites, two minute sound bites, a couple sentences in a, in a, in a interview, you know, you don't have a ton of time to educate. So you have to speak it in their message. So instead of saying in the fed, I said, balance the budget and cut the spending. So we're not printing dollars. So our inflation's not out of control. So we can afford our groceries next year. And that's the message that I taught at the end of the day, it's preaching the same message that the fed needs to stop doing what it's doing. I'm against the fed. But it doesn't require me to have to teach an economics lesson to people in my one minute debate answer. That is that is why that broad appeal, I think, is something that can work. Um, you know, and I think that that might have been a difference. The other difference is, uh, and, I, and I cannot speak to Shane's campaigning. I first off, I want to say I supported Shane in both 2020 and 2022. Uh, so you know, I voted for him. I support a lot of his things like defend the guard, ending the state income tax in Georgia is like, hell yes, let's do that. Uh you know, a lot of this stuff I support, but I can also say speaking just for me, again, I'm not speaking to his campaigning, but I'm speaking to me. I looked at a map of every county in Georgia and what their vote totals were. And any county that I spent the time and had the time to be able to go out and campaign and knock on doors actually did better than my 2.1% average. Sometimes I was over 3% at 3.5% in a couple counties. Any cam- Any county that I could not get out to campaign in, I did less than my 2.1%. I did lower. Um, the only, the only County that I actually did lower than 2.1% where I campaigned hard was Fulton County, which is the main County in Atlanta. It's one of the bluest counties in the country. It was no surprise that Raphael Warnock cleaned up there, but I tried, you know, it's kind of my home turf down here in Metro Atlanta. But so that speaks to maybe the fact that I just got out and campaigned and knocked on a lot of doors, took the time to speak to as much media as possible and appeared, you know, I went to both the Juneteenth and Pride festivals. I talked to maybe a thousand voters over Juneteenth weekend. It's a great opportunity to do outreach. Maybe that might have made the difference. It's just the, the style of campaign that I was actually getting on the ground a little bit more. Again, I don't. I can't speak to Shane's because I don't know. 
But, uh, you know, that's that can maybe have been the difference. But other than that, you know, I think our messaging does work. And I think if we're going to grow the party, we have to understand that the tent has to get a little bit bigger and we can't be like playing purity tests and saying, oh, you're not a real libertarian if you support X, Y, or Z. We have to have broad agreements on things. Government is too big. It does too much. It spends too much. It takes too much from us. It, uh, you know, government abuses people through X, Y, and Z. People should have their inherent human rights. These are big tent ideas. We can have dis- dis- uh, disagreements on the minutia, but we should be agreeing on the big tent things and growing the party that way. Uh, because if we don't, we're never going to get elected and we're just going to be seen as like spoilers or people who are, you know, just screaming into a void. I want to actually get us elected libertarians all over the country so we can have a real impact in our communities and bring the power away from government and back to those communities and back to those individuals and localize as much power as we can in each and every individual, because that's where power ultimately resides. And too much of it has been taken from us by a a large government. And so that's the message that I want to preach. It's a big tent message. And I also think it's fairly radical because nowadays you have two authoritarian duopoly parties who are content on controlling us in their own way. And so being anywhere in the fight for freedom, anywhere along that libertarian spectrum nowadays is quite radical and it's going to wake people up, but it's better if we speak the voters language. And I, I, I just sincerely believe that. So what do you think uh, your top messages would be? Um, your you've formed an exploratory committee mm-hmm. for president. So maybe the, the question is, you know, why do you want to run for president? If, Retail politics kind of made the difference over a big radical machine or whatever. Um, why run for president? Why why does that idea attract you? And maybe a little bit about what an exploratory committee is. Yeah, so I, I formed this exploratory committee uh, because I'm, I'm testing the waters. That's what an exploratory committee does. We're looking at if we can get the support structure needed and the movement needed to actually have an effect and possibly win this nomination. I don't want to jump into anything officially uh, if I don't feel like I have a chance at doing well at it. Uh, Otherwise, it's a waste of people's time and efforts. The whole purpose of an exploratory committee is to start traveling around, speaking to libertarians about what your messaging would be, what you feel like might be needed in 2024, and get their response. It's a listen and response kind of thing. So I'm going around all over the country right now. I'll be traveling to like 20 states the next three months to speak to libertarians about what they want in a 2024 campaign, what they want to see out of a 2024 campaign. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to be listening to them. I've so far been in like four or five states already uh, doing this kind of listening tour. And I, I've been very encouraged about the fact that people want to see a positive face in 2024 that's going to be pushing a, a libertarian message that's contrasting against the duopoly and not just being like, they're bad. Because that's what they do to each other. They just like, the Republicans suck. The Democrats suck. Vote for me. We do not need to do that. We have to be providing a positive, forward-thinking message that is putting a contrast. And I think that's uh, what I hopefully can provide. I'm going to keep exploring this over the next few months. Uh, What attracts me to the idea of running for president? Uh, I really like the idea of speaking to audiences who are not libertarians yet and trying to make them libertarian. I'm pretty darn good at that. I also uh, feel like I took every advantage and every opportunity to get media and earn media that I could running for United States Senate. And I feel like I could do that as a national candidate, uh, possibly. And I also think uh, it's very important for me to be able to, you know, uh, help people who are on the down ballot. If I can get attention and help get those that media coverage, 
I want to share that with every single libertarian who's running across the country. I want to be arm in arm with libertarian candidates and help them win in city councils and mayor's races and state rep races. And hopefully, God, I hope we can win some congressional and some Senate races in this whole thing. But I want to be there every step of the way to help candidates because that's ultimately what our top of the ticket is there to do. They are there to fight for the libertarian value. They're there to spread the libertarian message in a way that's going to grow the party and our effect and our messaging and grow our influence and help the other people who are running all across the country because they need that help. And we need to have that support structure. And I feel like a lot of libertarians uh, really feel like they're maybe not going to get that support, maybe from the national party and they need it. And maybe the national campaign structure is something that's going to be able to help facilitate that. And I want to bring people together. I don't want to divide the Libertarian Party. I want the Libertarian Party to come together. I want the people who feel like they are now on the sidelines and that they're not welcome. I want them to know that they still are welcome. And I want the people who maybe feel like they've pushed them out to understand that they need to open the door back up. And they need to stop trying to push people out. We need to stop being so divisive. I also feel like you cannot do that with a message that is rooted in negativity and being edgelordy just won't work. (laughs) We have to be positive. We have to be in growth mode. We cannot be in purity test mode because it just won't work. Yeah. I've, I've been, um, I was an early, if not one of the first critics of heist and the Mises caucus. I was excited for them to join because I was a Ron Pauler and I wanted Ron Pauler's to stop being in the GOP and join the LP. Yeah. Um, and I've, been profoundly disappointed (laughs) um and i think they're the elephant in the room and i think it it poses a challenge right i mean look i'm not in the lp i haven't been active for many many a decade at this point uh so i don't know that i have a good beat on where the current libertarian party is or what the challenges are of of collecting delegates for a campaign like yours But I think to those of us who are kind of in the free market libertarian classical liberal sense, you sort of like look at the libertarian party and you go, oh, well, it's just captured wholly and everybody in the LP must just believe in this stuff, uh, in in kind of their message and their way of doing politics. Uh, And, and, you know, how entrenched is kind of the the Hoppian uh, paleo libertarian mindset in the party is it is it a lot less than maybe it seems online and those uh, of us who haven't been in a while or you know do you have a real a real challenge in getting enough delegates in 24 should you run well i'll be a realist you know in, in the last convention they ran the table they won every race you know they, they filled their slate out and i wish them well like i said you know i have disagreements with the leadership of that caucus i don't have disagreements with every single member in fact i have friends who are members of the Mises caucus like i don't in fact i I think Mises is probably one of the best libertarian thinkers out there. If you really want to read somebody and get really into libertarianism, great guy to look into. Uh, that being said, you know, I wish them well. When they got everything in Reno, I said, okay, you guys have the keys to power. You've promised that we're going to grow. We're going to be in growth mode. We're going to get new candidates. We're going to get new energy. We're going to get new fundraising. We're going to get much more, 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 more. And we just have not seen that develop. And that is, you know, and you, no one can be blamed because they have won every slate. They have decided that they wanted to do kind of a uniparty kind of rule within internally. I don't think that that's the best way to facilitate the party because then you're only speaking to one audience and you have a whole another section of the party that feels wholly unrepresented. And it's incumbent upon a party that it's incumbent upon a group that takes control like that to be the first to actually extend a hand of friendship to those who were lo- who lost to say, you still have a place here. 
And that didn't, I, I don't feel like that's, it that's was the exact opposite. I mean, and, I, and I feel like that's a very, that's, and that is what you're, that is why you're not seeing the growth they wanted. If they had won and said, you know what? We want you guys to be involved. We want you to get involved too. We're going to grow this thing. We would have seen some growth, but if we're wholly separating people out, that's not going to work. And I don't want to, I don't want the Ron Paulers out of the LP. I think Ron Paul, the people who got here because of Ron Paul, good for them. They're here. I want you to be here. But I also don't want you to think that it's only for you because there's libertarians across the spectrum and they need a political home. We need people who are sick and tired of the duopoly, a place to go. And just because somebody came here from the left, that is not a reason. First off, people who try to brand me as a leftist, I ain't a leftist. I wasn't even really a leftist when I was a Democrat. I was a blue collar Democrat. I was a cut spending and welfare reform Democrat. Dude, Chase, I so am. Like, I am a. I was a Bushy. I'm a Christian. I'm a conservative leaning le- like person. I'm called a leftist by these people. I mean, it's just you know, you can't. So yeah, go, and finish. I'm not, your and I'm not, again, I'm not, and I'm not hating on the average person who went up there and voted in Reno because I think a lot of those people was their first convention. They were told, "Hey, the Libertarian Party has been controlled by the left and by this woke mob," and like I just don't, I don't think that that's true. And we can disagree, I, you know, and I can even say, I thought the party maybe should have been more forceful against mandates from the beginning. We can disagree on that messaging. But the truth is, is the people who were in charge of the party before the takeover were a wholly libertarian, just like the people who were there before them and the people who were there before them, all the way back to David Nolan. We're libertarians. We do not take the time to travel to conventions and to be part of the party that does not win so much if we're not wanting to be invested in it. We are libertarians. And we need to recognize that. Uh, and, and, you know, and like I said, I, we can disagree with past messaging, but that doesn't make them leftists. And, and, and I think it's, it's wholly stupid because it just, it, it collectivizes people in a way that just isn't true. And it shoves a whole segment of the population away. Oh, you think, uh, you, you know, you support LGBTQ rights. You're a leftist. No, you're not. You're somebody who supports LGBTQ rights. Oh, and by the way, we had a gay man run for president a long time ago. The first nominee, uh, John Hoskins. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, the first uh, the first statewide candidate in Georgia who was LGBTQ was in 1998. And he was a candidate for lieutenant governor who was a small business owner. He was a bar owner in Atlanta who was tired of regulation from government. <laughs> so the truth is, is you cannot wholly collectivize people. And I'm not going to wholly collectivize the Mises Caucus either because I don't believe that everybody there is like a monolith. I believe that those people can make decisions for themselves. I hope they do because I want to provide an alternative to some of that messaging that I think is going to grow this party and grow our messaging. That is what I want. I want this party to succeed. I do not want this party to fail. And that does not require a civil war. It does not require a schism. It requires people to actually come together. And I want to grow this party with a positive brand messaging. And that does mean opposing some of the things like, you know, I don't, I just can't not jive with some of the hoppy and stuff. And because I, I feel like that does not equate itself with libertarianism, uh, you know, uh, supporting wholly illiberal, like, you know, these people who are like in love with the government over in like Hungary or whatever, it's a wholly illiberal authoritarian government. Like, I just can't, I, I can't fall in love with the Victor Orban folks. Like, that's just not my deal. Like I, I'm not into, you know, in monarchism, like, okay, that's, does, does not jive with me because the truth is, is everybody who supports monarchism thinks they're going to be part of the ruling class. And the truth <laughs> is they're not, they're yeah. not. Uh, like, that's, that's the reality. But because the people who would be in charge of a monarchy are already super rich and they already control the world anyways. Yeah. They don't need a crown on their head. The dude who works at the sheet metal factory in, in Tampa is not, <laughs> uh, all right. I, we, we don't have a lot of time. Uh, you know, 
so is that is that part of the calculus of announcing early? Typically, you're you'd announce in December, so you'd start going, you know, in January t- to conventions. Uh, the year that you would go to the convention in 2024. So is is part what, what is part of the calculation of announcing so early? Well, that has really little to do with the internal politics of it all. That has more to do with the fact that every time I have campaigned as a libertarian, spoken about libertarian campaigns, helped libertarian campaigns with phone banking or door knocking, they always say, I wish you'd been running earlier. I wish I'd heard about you earlier. Uh, and I wish you guys had started campaigning earlier. In fact, we have a whole group of people who every, you know, every couple of years, they ask the convention be made in the fall or you know earlier the previous year. They think that that's a better idea for our campaigns. Um I believe in getting out there early and starting to meet people and yeah, starting to grow the coalition of people who you would need to actually affect change and win a nomination within the Libertarian Party that does not require you to sit on the sidelines and wait. If you think, you know, you're just going to wait and all of a sudden the work's going to magically happen. No, you got to put in the work now. And I'm ready to do that. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm starting to do that, forming this exploratory committee and looking at what can be done and looking at the possibilities. And again, if it's something that I feel like I can do, I'm going to do it. But it, that's the whole point of jumping in and exploring it now is so that I'm not just like, you know, sitting on my hands and going, gee, I wonder what. No, I want to go ahead and hear that feedback now and start seeing if we can grow a positive messaging now so that I'm not wasting my time in the winter of next year or, you know, in the winter of the, this year. It's coming December, you know. I don't want to be wasting my time in the holidays. If I know what I'm doing, I'll be there, But uh, you know. It makes total sense, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you've you've got a little bit of a heart out, and I would love to talk policy. So I would love to have you back soon. And hey, we can you know we can go a little longer. I don't mind if we go like okay. another you know we can go another ten minutes maybe. That's okay, fine with all me. right, good. Want to talk a little policy? Yeah, I I would love to hear what your you know we talked about the internal stuff, and that's what you know people who would vote in a convention care about. And uh, I, but I'd love to hear the broader message of kind of what you'll lead with. You know, what yeah. What are the top issues that you would lead with should you uh, win the nomination if you decide to run for president? Yeah, so uh, I'm a big believer in uh, cutting spending back, back to a balanced budget. I think balancing the national budget is a good idea. That's going to come with uh, cutting the Pentagon naturally. It's a huge area to cut. I'm also a big believer in cutting corporate welfare out entirely, all subsidies, all giveaways to companies and lowering the corporate tax rate overall. So that way small, medium and large businesses are all competing on the same field and they're not being, uh, uh, you know, cause right now we have a situation where giant businesses actually have a massive, massive advantage because they've bought and paid for our Congress. So I want to get back to a more competitive free market system. Uh, I'm a big believer in global trade. I worked in global logistics for about five years. And so I believe in uh, free trade and that when we trade, goods and not bombs with people that we ultimately have a more peaceful world. Uh, I'm a big supporter of immigration reform. I think it should be as simple as possible for people to come here and work and live and put down roots. Uh, I think the complicated overly red tape system that we have now was like the best example a libertarian could ever show people of what bad government looks like and inefficient government looks like. And we can simplify our immigration system uh, that treats people humanely, but also shows that you don't need to have overly complicated programs in every facet of government. Um, and I'm a big believer in criminal justice reform. Naturally, we want to end the drug war. That's that's a libertarian standby. But I'm also a big believer in things like uh, reforming, you know, I'm in the death penalty guy. I want to end qualified immunity for police. Um, I think police ultimately, you know, and this would be a localized issue, but, uh, you know, I ran for Congress on saying that police in Georgia should have to carry liability insurance uh, because I think if that happened, they would price them, bad ones would price themselves out of a job. 
Um, I believe in ending the Department of Education and bringing education back to the control of parents, students, and teachers. Well, really, students, parents, and teachers in that order and not boards and bureaucrats. Because I think if we're going to spend any tax money on education, it should be at the control of the student and parents and let teachers make curriculum and not boards and bureaucrats, which ultimately don't really serve anybody. If you even talk to a public school teacher, even teachers in that system will say, I wish I could teach this way or that way or didn't have to teach the test. I believe in educational freedom so that people can get the best education for themselves uh, and and for their community. So those are some of my big issues that I'm going to be talking about uh, as this rolls along and my big policy issues. Um, and I think those are issues that are really important with people. Those are kitchen table issues. Getting spending and inflation under control is a kitchen table issue, I think. Uh, giving Empowering students and parents in the world of education and putting free market policies there, that is something that's a kitchen table issue. So those are the issues that we have to talk about at the top of the ticket. 2024 is broad. You know, we have to talk broad in those ways. And so that's the policy that I'm looking forward is, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. I know it's not a, a presidential issue, um, but you, you ran on it in Georgia and it's um, uh, ranked choice voting. Yes. Uh, I've not done a show on it. I'd love to do a show on it and I'd love to have you on and, and maybe talk about it because I'm a big fan of it. How would that fundamentally transform our electoral system, especially for so, a state like Georgia? So in Georgia right now, we have the runoff system, right? So uh, if nobody gets over 50%, we come back a few weeks later and have a runoff. Uh, and it costs millions of dollars. It costs a lot of people to have to take their holidays off to do electioneering and things like this. Um, and so I think ranked choice voting is ultimately a better way to do the runoff system so that we have somebody who's getting nominally over 50% support being sent to D.C., I don't want somebody who's under 50% support being sent to represent hundred percent of us. Like that even goes against like the idea of democracy, right. Of like majority elections. So uh, rank choice voting would ultimately increase third party influence in these elections because people would not feel so afraid that they're going to spoil an election if they make the libertarian their first choice, because they can always make the Republican or the Democrat, whomever they prefer their second choice and the runoff instantly happens. It also increases civility in campaigns. Republicans aren't going to sit here and crap all over libertarians because they know they want us, you know, they, they want our second choice vote so they can win the instant runoff. So it will be instead of them after I force a runoff coming to me and begging me to just endorse one or the other, they come to us beforehand and say, Hey, libertarians, here's what I as the Republican or I as the Democrat am wanting to do so that you give me your second choice vote. Here's where our policy align. And then you can make an educated decision based on who you want to be your second choice as a libertarian. And they're coming to you ahead of time, ideally. If they don't, vote libertarian and vote for whoever you think is less shitty. Like, that's just the way, or don't vote for anybody at all. Let, you know, just run it out after one vote. And if you care not to vote duopoly, you don't have to. But with a ranked choice system, it opens it up for third parties. It, it, it ultimately, I think, increases voter trust that they're going to have somebody who's nominally supported by a majority of people. And uh, I, I do think with a ranked choice system, third parties like us, the libertarians will actually be able to grow our influence and grow our vote totals and actually have more of an impact uh, in pushing the Overton window towards liberty. So that's why I support it. Uh, in Georgia in particular, the Republicans are looking to do away with runoffs because they're, they're tired of having to do them because we force them now all the time. Um, and they want to either get rid of them altogether and go to plurality voting, which sucks. That's how you get people with 45% of the vote winning. Or they want to lower the threshold for a runoff to 
or they want to do ranked choice voting. And ranked choice voting was at like less than 10% support when I started this race. It's over 30% support now. So it's time for us to really make a push here in the state to get instant runoffs. And and not for nothing, uh, every military overseas voter in Georgia in the 2022 election used a ranked choice ballot because the, the window of four weeks was too short for them to send them a second ballot and get it all back. So they just had them do ranked choice. So even even the election folks here know the ranked choice is just a simplified version of the long drawn out runoff process that we have already. Yeah, I saw a Republican, the Republican Party uh, bashing ranked choice voting in Alaska, and it, it would allow more moderates. I'm like, well, that's all the evidence you need is the existing power structure doesn't want it. All right. Shameless self-promotion time, Chase Oliver. Where can people learn more about you? And if they have questions, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah. So uh, first and foremost, I encourage everybody to go to my uh, page. It's going to be more fleshed out in the next coming weeks, but right now it's still just kind of a landing page, but go to votechaseoliver.com. Sign up for email updates. Uh, if you want to donate, that would be great because you're literally putting gas in the tank because I'm about to be driving hundreds of miles in my Corolla through uh, Alabama, Mississippi this weekend. Um, but yeah, go to votechaseoliver.com. If you want to follow me online, uh, follow me on Twitter at Chase for Liberty. You can also find me YouTube uh, Chase Oliver, Chase for Liberty, uh, and Chase Oliver hyphen libertarian on Facebook. And I'll be on all of the social media platforms, uh, very, very soon. Also, uh, I'm going to be in Alabama, Mississippi, uh, the weekend of the 13th, 14th, 15th, the next weekend I'll be in DC and Virginia weekend after that, I'll be in Arizona and then in Florida and then on down the line. So sign up for those email updates at votechaseoliver.com and you'll know when I'm going to be in your neighborhood. All right, Chase Oliver. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening here on The Chris Spangle Show. If you learned something, then the best thing you can do is to share this information, share this podcast. That's the best way to support creators, people like Chase who are running for office. Uh, It's really word of mouth. That's how you grow and how you can spread the message. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon here on The Chris Spangle Show.